welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Today on Relay Chain, we have Joran Brund, who's a support engineer at Parity Technologies. And we are actually going to be switching places a little bit today. As you may have noticed, we have not released a relay chain for several months now. And that is partly because I have been super busy with the Polkadot launch and moving and working on a bunch of stuff. And so I will still be doing some episodes, but Joran is actually going to be taking over on some of the hosting and interviewing a bunch of teams in the Polkadot ecosystem. So today we are switching roles and he's going to be the host and I'm going to be his first guest. So I'll pass it over to Joran now. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. It's it's great to be part of the, the podcast. I'm really excited to uh, be interviewing you for the first time. So I thought I'd do like an attempt at doing your intro and, and introducing you to your show. Yeah, go so for here it. We go. <laughs> Welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things Substrate, Polkadot, and Web3. Hi, Joe. Welcome to your show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. So uh, how are things going with you right now? Good. Super busy, as always, Polkadot and Kusama. It's a big world out there and lots of stuff to build. Cool. Yeah, I think folks probably already know you a, a little bit if they've been tuning into Relay Chain in the past, but give some people like a, an intro to your to yourself. Yeah. So I've been working in blockchain since probably like late 2016 and, and specifically Polkadot since late 2018. So a bit over like five years in total and a bit over two years just on Polkadot. Before that, I did a couple things. I, I worked in aerospace doing shock and vibration analysis on satellite launches, and then also had a few years attempting to be a professional cyclist. And, and so that, that was kind of like my background. Um, and, and now I work mostly on protocol integrations at Web3 Foundation. So um, helping kind of like these companies like wallets or, or custodians try to, to build our ecosystem both in, in depth. So like adding governance and staking and kind of like these features besides just holding Polkadot and, and Kusama tokens um, and also in their breadth. So um, not just supporting Polkadot and Kusama, but also supporting parachains and a bunch of the teams in our ecosystem. That's awesome. So uh, you talk a bunch about kind of like how you got in and when you got into the blockchain space, but I'm more interested in the why of of why you got into the blockchain space and then how you found Parity and how you got into Parity. Yeah, so I actually got into blockchain, I would say like a couple of times and they were all for different reasons. So the first time it was maybe like 2011 or 12. Um, I don't even remember like the first time I, I heard of Bitcoin or anything. I just, you know, just, some people were talking about it or whatever. And, you know, I read about it and, and thought it was it was interesting, followed it for a couple of years. But it was more of like, you know, I was kind of like getting into, say, libertarianism at that time. And that was what a lot of people were talking about. And it, it made sense to me kind of like intellectually. And I thought like, OK, this is cool, you know, and from a very like um, we talk about a lot like, oh, you know, um, say, money is just this thing that's like, it's just a concept that's, you know, it's just an idea that, that we all agree on and, and all this stuff. But it's like very intellectual, not really like practical. And, and then I got into it like a lot more in, in 2016, just out of like the more practical realization of how like current infrastructure is broken. And it's like a lot of it is like 
just hacks on top of hacks on top of hacks. And, and so you see like these institutions, like banks and stuff, and they, they have like big fancy walls and advertising and they all look good from the outside, but it's really just like this really like primitive technology. And, and kind of like what made me realize that was that, what, well, what made like the whole Bitcoin thing, like kind of like intellectually like interesting, but not really practically applicable is that at that time in my life, I was on the quote unquote standard track for like, you know, an American, you know, I was from a middle-class family. I went to university. I got a job at a big corporation, 401k, and like all of the things that like you normally are supposed to do. And everything kind of worked for me. I mean, the system is kind of set up to to work well for that. And it did. Uh, but as soon as I deviated from that, like even a little bit, it completely broke down. Um, so like this was when I moved to England to pursue professional cycling. You know, I moved to England. It's not like I moved across the world to the middle of nowhere or something, you know, like it, it's England. And it was like, you know, it took me weeks to get a bank account. It was like to transfer money from my US bank to my British bank. It was like one time I was like, well, how come it hasn't arrived? And I called the bank and they're like, oh yeah, we just forgot to send it. You know, like they were manually processing these transfers. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like for people who are like actually outside of like the standard path, it's obvious, like it just wouldn't work and it's not like really adaptable to to users needs or, or like changing technology so so at that time it, like crypto was actually just like easier to use like it, it was easier to use crypto than like going through banks and whatnot and, and then like when i got into it full-time and like in late 2016 i i'd kind of gotten this idea i guess it's actually like on, on some level it's kind of the same as why i was getting in, into it before is that like it just worked better and it was easier but like i had this idea of writing trading algorithms like on the stock market because my background was in in time series analysis for like shock and vibration. And I was like, hey, you know, like this kind of like random time signal of vibration, it kind of looks like, you know, trading. And like, I could probably like write algorithms to kind of like characterize um, and predict this. And and trying to do it in like the stock market, it was like, well, you need to get like a special brokerage account. You get like bad data or like the to get good data, it was actually like really expensive. You have to like subscribe to some like proprietary data feed um, that was really expensive. And I was living in like, the boonies of France. So even if I got like this proprietary data feeds, like I had really like, I basically had like DSL internet and couldn't really like process it. And, and then I just found that like, you know, in crypto, there was like public APIs, the data was free to download. Everything was 24 seven, which actually makes like the analysis much easier because like um, when you have like holidays and like opens and closes and, and all of this stuff, you have all these like gaps in your data that you have to kind of like make decisions about how to deal with and when you just have like a very constant like steady like no gap data it actually makes it like much easier from a a processing standpoint so that's actually like when i got really hooked into blockchain it was like we kind of like rat on it for having like bad user experience and like no good uis and stuff but actually like for trying to like interact with it it was like just much more accessible and and like in, in some ways a lot easier once you kind of learn how it works. And then I guess like from there, it was actually a pretty short time that I did that. And then I, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm looking at all these like symbols and like doing like correlation and uh, my covariance analyses and, and all of this stuff. And I was like, well, what do, what do these symbols actually mean? And like, so I started looking into like Ethereum and Litecoin and like all the other ones. Yeah, like late, late 2016 or, or so. And then I got really interested in the protocols and yeah, so wanted to work on one of those. And then long story short, I guess that was long. I, that wasn't short. <laughs> um, ended up a parody. 
That's awesome. Uh, you said a few things there that I want to pull back on, but um, I, I've interviewed a bunch of folks before this in in different blockchain events and stuff like that. And I, I'm always interested in hearing that story. And I, I feel like typically they fall into like one of three categories. It's the technologists like really excited about this new emerging technology or like the financial people saying like, it's so much faster, so much cheaper, so much easier. And then um, you got the libertarians that are like, it's freedom, man. And like, I feel like you touched on on each one of those points and it, it all kind of culminating into into your work now. So I think that's super interesting. But actually, like, is a good point. So like, actually, like in, in 2016, around the same time that I went full time in, into blockchain, the other thing that I was looking at doing was going to get a, a master's degree in economics. And I had applied to like seven or eight schools in Europe. And there was basically one of them, um, the Toulouse School of Economics, that I was like, if I get in there, like, I'm just going to like write the check and go. Like, that's where I really wanted to go. And I got into every single program except Toulouse School of Economics and uh, <laughs> ultimately like decided not to do it. But I've always been like really interested in, uh, from a high level, like how do you make decisions in an environment where there's like so many variables that you can't comprehend and that's kind of like why i enjoyed cycling as a sport is like it doesn't have like a 50 meter by 100 field it's like every road is different like every race is different and even if it's same roads it's like different weather conditions it can be windy it can be rainy it can be cold or hot um, and you know it's not like one team against another team it's like there's like 22 teams and they all have like their own incentives and like how do they actually like behave in these like conditions that are like totally variable as well and that's kind of what i like about blockchain is that you're bringing in this like political philosophy and economics and finance and computer science and all of this other stuff that like, like it just all mixes together and then you have all these different actors in the system they all have different incentives they all have different backgrounds and decision making processes and how do they all actually like interact with each other i mean that's kind of like fascinating in general and it's like amazing how blockchain kind of brings all that together and that's kind of what makes it like such a fascinating area to work in. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I want to touch a, a bit on what you you mentioned it a couple of times now, but you were a professional cyclist. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, like I was kind of in like the lower rungs of professional cycling, like what an American would call like AAA baseball or, or something. Every country kind of has like their own designation of what it, what they call it. But um, I, I was doing it like as a hobby um, in the U.S., both road and mountain biking. Uh, I won a national championship in mountain biking, which was kind of my ticket to like, you know, it was like a nice thing on my uh, resume to go out and like find some other teams. Ended up on a British team for 2015 season. Didn't go so great, but I ended up with like some good results in the, like the kind of second half of the season and found like a different team in France to, to do the, like the next two years on. So I ended up kind of like doing three years in Europe, um, doing cycling and I mean, like, so like after I left the U.S., I was totally just doing road cycling and, and yeah, just like traveled around doing a bunch of races. And yeah, it was good experience. That's super cool. I'm of the belief that blockchain is going to touch every kind of industry. Do you see a, a particular use case for blockchain in cycling? It's all right if, if I'm putting you on the spot, but like, uh, I'm just interested if anything comes to mind. Yeah, I was actually like having a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago with, with somebody I mean, there's kind of like all the esports stuff that you could do, like, you know, betting and, and gambling and, and kind of all, all of this stuff. I think an interesting one, I, I don't know if I'll like make a lot of friends with this idea, 
But like something that that happens sometimes with like、uh, the doping stuff is that when somebody tests positive for something, you, there's these things called like TUEs, therapeutic use exemptions, where you can basically say like. The whole doping thing is not like just black and white. There's like some that are like total no,、um, and then some that's like, well, if you have a prescription and blah blah blah. So like a lot of times, like these teams will kind of like come up with these like backdated prescriptions and say like, no, no, we had a we had a prescription for that. That was allowed, and, and it it would be interesting. Like I, I think a lot of those are kind of like backdated and whatnot. So I would be interested in like. If you could have like like basically like commit a hash of like all of your kind of like medical records, it's not the actual data, even if it's encrypted, because that brings up like well, if the encryption breaks, you don't want like everybody's like private medical data on this blockchain or whatever.、Um, but like if you just take like a hash of, of something, like a hash of this prescription that you got,、um, and then you just have like kind of like all these hashes on chain, and then like if somebody ever like tested. Positive for something, you could kind of challenge them to like, you know, did you actually have that prescription at that time?、Um, and they could prove it like with the hash that they had on chain by like actually providing the pre-image, which would be like the actual、um, prescription or like exemption that they had. So I don't know. I don't know if that that would gain adoption. I don't think anybody would really like it, but it would be like an interesting、uh, application of like when you people think that like something has been backdated and they didn't really go through the proper procedure. To kind of like be able to challenge that and say like, well, did you actually have this at the time, or are you just kind of like producing this now? Yeah, no, that seems like a perfectly logical use of blockchain. But I think yeah, it's it's all about a matter of time before these sorts of things become adopted and the and the use cases actually、um, becomes evident. That's awesome though. Okay, so let's talk a bit more about your work. So when I came into Parity, you、uh, were essentially my boss.、Um, you still basically are,、uh, but you're moving from Parity over to Web3 Foundation. So let's let's talk about that transition and and what is the actual difference between Parity and Web3. Yeah, so Parity's is a for-profit company.、Um, you you kind of think of it as like Red Hat to Linux. So its main product is Substrate, and and Web three is a nonprofit, and, and its general goal is furthering Web three technologies. So the the two organizations do interact a lot, but that's primarily because Web three contracted Parity to make the first implementation of Polkadot. So actually, like from the Parity side, there's a lot of interaction to Web three, and while like we were developing Polkadot. There was a lot of interaction from Web3 to Parity too, because it was like kind of like building out the very first implementation. So like we worked together a lot from like the researchers at Web3 and the developers at Parity.、Um, but from the Web3 side, we actually work with like a lot of people, not just the Parity. So like there are two other teams that like we financed to build Polkadot clients. We also do like some development of like cryptography libraries and, and also like research into like the future of Polkadot. So some of the stuff like hierarchical relay chains. And also starting to get into like more like zero knowledge cryptography, and also run like the grants program. So like a lot of like the ecosystem teams, team build, teams building parachains and, and whatnot, like trying to like build up the Polkadot ecosystem, but also kind of like Web three technologies in general. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. It, it's I think every time I ask somebody about those things, like、uh, inside Parity, inside Web three, outside of the of both of these companies, I get like a very a little bit different of an answer, and I'm still kind of stitching these together in my mind. But yes, that definitely makes sense, and it's super interesting to to see how this、uh, space has been developing, and the the pieces that each company kind of、um, contributes. You mentioned there some research on、um, hierarchical relay chains. Is that like 
a distant future or maybe not so distant future of when um, you know we've we've filled up the relay chain with the hundred pair chains and now we're looking to add another layer of a relay chain. Is that is that what that's referring to? Yeah. So basically, like instead of having the pair chains be kind of like individual blockchains, they would be other relay chains that could host their own blockchains. So go, it goes from a system of, of 100 blockchains or like parachains to basically infinite. So if you're familiar with like uh, mathematics, there, there's like generally two types of proofs, uh, proof by contradiction and proof by induction. And so like you can kind of like a proof by induction is basically where you prove like the kind of like for if k equals zero then this statement is true and then you also prove that if for k this is true then also for k plus one this is true and, and then from there you can kind of just go well we had from zero and then we can say from zero to one from one to two blah 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 so you kind of get this like infinite scalability at that point like once you've kind of like been able to have a parachain as a relay chain you can just add like you have this level of abstraction where you can just kind of like make new relay chains underneath that relay chain. Um, and, and so it kind of becomes infinitely scalable that way. That's remarkable. I love that. I can't wait to see that, uh, that rollout. Um, okay, so during your time at Parity, you started you started this podcast. And I'm interested, like, what, what was your goal with starting the podcast? Has that changed at all as you've been doing it? And, and what do you see kind of for the future of this podcast? Yeah, so uh, I wasn't really the one who started it. It was like kind of like a comms team effort in general. They decided it would be a good idea. Um, there were a few people kind of thrown out as hosts. I was actually not one of them. Uh, <laughs> I asked if uh, if I could try an episode or two, um, and then I ended up kind of being the one who enjoyed it the most. I think. Yeah, it ended up like becoming my thing. That, that, that's how it started. Cool. So, what was the goal for for the podcast? Um, honestly, like. It was just for fun um, or like I didn't have like a really strong vision at the very beginning for it. It was really just like it was like a way to help me do my job. When I first started at Parity, I was in the ecosystem development team. Funny enough, like I, I moved to the engineering team and then I'm like I came back to ecosystem development and then like moved to the foundation. But like I was in ecosystem development and trying to like get the lay of the land of our ecosystem and like the other players in Web3. You know, you can like read everything online and, you know, like go through their GitHub and like read their blogs and white papers and kind of like do this passive looking, if, if you will. But it's always easiest to just like talk to people about what they're doing. And having a podcast was kind of like a, a free, like it's like a magic sentence of like, I have a podcast. So like <laughs> I, I could just go to like whoever I want to talk to, like CEOs and whatnot and say like, oh, I have a podcast. Will you teach me about your project? Um, and yeah, it was like just kind of like this avenue to really like reach out in the ecosystem and learn a lot about the teams in our ecosystem. And that's kind of like a big angle that I had, which is like really selfish. It just like helped me do my job better. Um, and then I just started to like it and yeah, kept doing it. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, and so now moving forward, uh, I'll be helping out with the podcast. And I think the idea is that I'm going to be interviewing more of like the parachain projects that are building in the ecosystem, finding out a bit about what they're building, how they're building, why they chose Substrate, all that fun stuff. And um, and you're going to be focusing on a bit of folks like kind of a little bit outside or tangentially related to like Polkadot and, and maybe the general blockchain industry. Is that is that accurate? 
yeah i i mean i think we'll see where it goes which has kind of always been the the direction with the with this podcast but yeah i mean like i've always really enjoyed kind of like the episodes with like i guess like the activists or journalists so so like jillian york and um shira frank uh sergey nazarov who's like in the builders ecosystem but like we had a very uh say like philosophical episode that we did together uh, i i always really like enjoyed doing those types of episodes uh, i hope i'm not leaving people out because i know there were like a lot of awesome guests um and, and i've done like a lot of the, the builders ones too but also like I, I think like you can do a good job with that and like i want to focus on like more of the yeah like like the journalists and activists and stuff like that and, and build out the team of hosts doing relay chain sweet that sounds great um so uh, yeah, before I even came into parody, I started listening to your podcast because I, I was in the ambassador program. And I was thinking, what what can I um, start to contribute to the ecosystem? I was like, oh, maybe I'll start a podcast. But I was like, let me first check if there's already a podcast. And I found Relay Chain. They started listening to some episodes. I'm like, well, this this guy's doing such a great job. I can't I can't really compete with that. But now I get to be uh, on on the a part of it on the other side. Yeah, if you um, can't beat them, join them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but in listening to some past episodes, you've had some very great guests on, and um, you've also mentioned a couple like books and stuff like that. One which that uh, stood out to me, and I've been reading recently. I'm nearly done it, but it's a it's a massive book. Uh, but it's called uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Sushana Zuboff, and um, you've talked about it a few times on the podcast. So I thought we'd we'd dig into it a little bit deeper here. So there's some, there's a, a theme that she comes back to several times throughout the book. And it's this, like the three parts of who knows, who decides and who decides, who decides. And so generally the book is about, you know, the big data companies, the Googles, the Facebooks that are, are kind of directly monetizing the data that we generate on a day to day basis. So the questions she keeps posing is like, who knows, who decides and who decides, who decides, like, within the context of people's data. And um, I, I'm interested, like, how that kind of influences what you think about our work in blockchain. Yeah, um, that one, like, we want to, like, make this as, I mean, as transparent as possible. I think, like, that's the number one goal is, like, openness, transparency, that at least everybody can see who decides, right? Um, yeah, I, I always saw, like, that, question kind of framed around like say like a larger conversation so like the big theme that i saw in the book was basically like she's like kind of moderating this debate um between bf skinner and hannah arendt and her primary like argument against skinner is that behaviorism kind of like fundamentally it, it denies the existence of a self so it's only like things that you could observe from outside of yourself. So like, did you buy this thing or did you go to this place? Um, and then like, if you look at kind of like IoT and some of the more like granular monitoring, like Google just bought Fitbit. So, you know, like, uh, you know, when you went to this web page, like what happened to your heart rate or like, did you start sweating? Like they can really get like precise on kind of like how you react, but it, it's totally just like observing kind of what happens to you from the exterior. It doesn't really like the model of this behaviorism and data collection, it doesn't really acknowledge that like you have like a self or like an internal emotional state. And then like kind of framed in the context of like the like the rent side is that like this kind of like denies 
the existence of like a future. She she says like, what is it? Um, I haven't read the book in like over two years. So, you know, it's like the denies the, there is no future tense or something. She, she mixes it into like a language, like there is no future tense or denies right, the existence yeah. of a future tense. And, and so that when like everything you do is recorded and it's just like kind of like only what's been observed and recorded about you and not about like what you experienced or felt that this is just like a completely unsustainable, like toxic thing. So when it comes to like, who knows who decides and who decides who decides, it's like, well, first of all, like who knows what, like, what are they knowing about you? And it's really like, they only know things that they've been able to observe about you which is like your reaction or like your behavior but they don't really know anything about like your experience or, or what you felt in that time and so are they really like in a good position to be making decisions about you probably not um and then like kind of like the next meta question of course is like who decides who decides so um which, which kind of like leads to an obvious power question of like well if people are already making bad decisions about you based on bad information that basically assumes that you don't have like a self who actually gets to decide who decides that stuff. Like that's a pretty dark thing to think about. So I guess like in, in the context of, and like a lot of her book, at least like in the, I think like in the last third, it, it's kind of goes into this, I don't want to say corruption, but kind of like revolving door between like big tech and big government mm -hmm. that like, it's kind of like, Google and Facebook are the ones who are deciding who decides, but it's like kind of via proxy and like it kind of looks democratic, but it's not really. So yeah, I, I mean, I think like that's probably one of the, the biggest things that, that we're working on in Polkadot is like making that A, transparent and B, that you actually have an option to opt out. Like you don't have to participate in Polkadot. So actually I kind of talked about this in my very first episode that I did with Gav. Um, so if you go back to like episode one, the, this idea that like, so like a blockchain is an economic vehicle. It, it really only like recognizes you if you have a stake in the system, but it is completely permissionless and voluntary. So anybody who feels like they are affected by the system can have a stake in the system and influence the direction of it. So it is transparent in that you see how the rules are made. It's not quite democratic because democratic kind of implies this like one person, one vote. And, and it, it's not that, but it, it lets anybody who feels like they are affected by the system actually have a voice in changing the direction of that system you can acquire a stake and start participating in governance and the discussions as you like if you really feel like there's a schism that's unresolvable via governance then then you can fork and make your own um and and maybe like exclude the people who don't agree with you in in that fork but but the important thing is like we actually have like transparent ways of like coming to a resolution about what these decisions should be so we kind of know who decides who decides um and if you don't like it you can you can participate you know there's not really a way for you to get like a voting share in, in google or facebook um but there is a way for you to get a voting share of polka dot and, and that like this is transparent and everybody can kind of see what's going on and i guess also like on the polka dot relay chain level like we kind of store as little information as possible like it, you know it should really be about like the parachains and like what they store and what people feel comfortable like interacting or like sharing with those parachains yeah 
That's really cool. Yeah. So a very interesting part about that was the fact that like when when I think of a, a stock in a company, I think, oh, okay, that gives you a piece of the company. But something that Sushana mentioned in the book is that like over time, they change the way that their stocks are issued and where they used to give you voting power. Now there's like a, a, a type C stock where you literally get no voting power in this company. And it's just like exposure to uh, the price of, of the stock, whatever that means. And so it was something very attractive about Polkadot was that we very quickly moved towards an open governance model where we do have a, a council and a technical committee. But these are folks that have, you know, are for the most part, like open and honest about who they are. They're, they're very transparent and they only have like certain level of power. But like you said, if you're a token holder, you still have a vote. You still can um, influence and participate in the governance of the protocol. And there's a very interesting mechanism that we have is even if you have a small amount of, of DOT or small amount of stake in the, in the system, you can use what's called conviction voting and you can lock that up for uh, an extended period of time. And that gives your vote more weight. So it, it's a way of like kind of balancing out the smaller person's vote, the little guy, so to speak. So I think that's a really great thing to mention about Polkadot. Yeah, the governance has been like amazing. And the, the fact that, you know, it was kind of developed so early on and is so like fundamental to the system. It, it's really amazing, like how it was designed from the ground up. And actually, when I when I started at Parity, I actually wasn't like that interested in the whole like governance topic. And, and since like kind of seeing what we built or like as we built it, I was like, actually, this is really cool. And like every like so many discussions kind of came down to governance and, and this question that I got like a lot more interested in it. Awesome. So um, with all this talk about, you know, the big companies kind of using or misusing power, depending on how you look at it, like, what do you think about what our current government system can do and and should do about these, uh, for lack of a better word, monopolies? Uh, which governance system, like the, Our current, the like, U.S. or yeah, traditional government system? Like, I'm not sure Polkadot has much to say about it yet, but maybe, maybe in the near future. Um, but like, is is it government's um, responsibility to step in and and break up these kind of systems, like like they did kind of to Microsoft uh, back in the day? Yeah, so that's kind of like the the thesis or like one of the core conclusions from from her book is that like. This is fundamentally different than, you know, like antitrust laws from 100 years ago or, or even 20 years ago, because uh, it's not really like um, it's not really like monopoly on a product um, or, or a domain. It's like what she, she calls like raw material. Right. It's like a whole different type of problem. And so like the same type of regulation doesn't work. Actually, the book is like quite pessimistic at the end. It's like it doesn't really come out with like a strong solution. And, and I don't think that like breaking this stuff up works because like, so what they have is like digital and, and shareable. So like you can break up Facebook and Instagram, but they can still have like a data sharing contract with each other. Right. So it's like, it just kind of makes the money flow into different buckets, but it doesn't actually solve the fundamental problem, which, which is that like, yeah, I mean, like they just have so much information on people. It's kind of funny, like for the first third of the book, she comes out like kind of right in the like the very beginning, if I remember correctly, kind of hard on like Hayekian economics and, and kind of like libertarianism. It's like the cause of all evil in Silicon Valley type of stuff. And actually, like towards the end, she she has this like pivot 
of like where she kind of like changes her tone to it and that a lot of these principles are based on the idea that everybody is kind of like universally ignorant and that like you just know like oh i'm good at like maybe you have like three skills or something like i'm good at a b and c and the market kind of like pays the highest salaries for thing b and so you go and you're like well i'm gonna get a career in that and you do that kind of like you know this is like you know adam smith invisible hands type of stuff and that like as long as everybody kind of stays like reasonably ignorant about these things and and they make decisions just based on like their little corner of knowledge then everything kind of works smoothly and that that was kind of like the main assumption that hayekian economics was based off of and she's basically like hayekian economics don't even apply here because like that assumption has been broken. Like we're operating in a completely different environment. I don't think I actually answered your question about like what you can do about it. Like, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I I think like ideally we just build a a better system. Like you can't really like get rid of Facebook by making something that's like 10% better. You know, it has to be like 10 X better. I don't think you can kind of like tweak these things that were, that were built from these like fundamentally flawed principles and then try to like turn them into something better. Um, I think we just have to like create um, an alternate solution that that is 10x better and make people start using that. I mean, well, not make kind of an implies force. Like, uh, I hope convince people to start using this. Yeah, I kind of uh, was unfair to you. Like, you don't have all the answers, Joe. Come on, tell tell us what we need to do. <laughs> Um, no, but I think uh, I think you you hit it at the end there, and I think it's a Buckminster Fuller quote, something along the lines of like, you don't change a system by destroying the current system; you just make a system that's that's better, and people will eventually move over to that system. Probably butchered that quote there, but something along those lines. Cool. So, do you have any other kind of um, book or literary kind of uh, suggestions for folks that give um, more context to the way that you approach uh, your work in blockchain, uh, something along the the lines that we've been talking about already? Oh, I always have book recommendations. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I say like one of them, very short, it's called, uh, or it's by Edward Luce. It's called The Retreats of Western Liberalism. I think this is a really, really good one about kind of like a lot of, I guess, like fake news, cancel culture type of stuff, which is actually like not very new. Like I, this is a little bit tangential, but like I just read a biography on uh, Vladimir Lenin and like he's kind of a master of fake news. And, and like kind of like when he stormed like the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, he was like printing in the newspaper that like they had won and like taken over the government and stuff. And it was like, they weren't even close. Like they just had like a couple of guys like kind of running around this building, but they hadn't actually done it yet. But they kind of like spread it, started spreading the news that like as if it had already happened. And kind of like the first thing he did in power was to like take over the the newspaper industry and like control the the press. It's kind of like the same thing happened, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, and they just didn't have like really the distribution means to make it like so pervasive. But like the the strategies around the stuff like hasn't really changed and and so like i think that's that's an interesting one another one i mean i like maggie nelson she's probably my favorite author but she has this book the art of cruelty yeah i don't know that that book just kind of like influences a lot of my thinking yeah i I guess i won't really say like how uh, specifically to blockchain um but some of the other ones like kathy o'neill weapons of math destruction that's like a a classic one a new a little bit newer one is um automating inequality by virginia eubanks so yeah about like how a lot of these kind of like black box algorithmic systems um, actually end up kind of like being trialed on lower income people. And, you know, when they don't work and they're like, you know, version 0.1 or something, those are the people who end up 
paying the consequences um, and, and kind of like remembering that like algorithms are not unbiased. Like they have the biases, their biases of their creators in them um, and, and trying to be like cognizant of that and like what we're designing, which I, I think is like something I actually like about what we're doing in Polkadot is that it's so abstract. It's really just like, we try to actually make as few assumptions as possible. It's like, just, can you make your blockchain in Wasm? Okay, cool. Uh, that's it. Like, and, and so I think that allows like a huge design space, but yeah, always to be like kind of aware of these decisions you're making and kind of like who's affected by them, but also the fact that like, Hey, this is voluntary. Like if you feel like Polkadot is affecting you, then like you do have a, a chance to participate in the system. That's awesome. I got I got a, a nice little list to work through here now. Very cool. So we've talked a whole bunch about the current um, juggernauts that are are using and misusing power. Um, I'm interested to to feel out where you think we are on a scale of like one to ten. Uh, one being like a complete Orwellian dystopia, and a ten being like a Star Trek like peace on Earth utopia. Uh, where do you think we kind of are on this uh, this scale, and what are your hopes for the future? And do you see what what kind of part do you see blockchain playing in in this future? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer probably depends on like where you are in the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So yeah. I, I don't know, like, uh, so I think like probably in some like technological sense, we're probably like closer to the one of like a Orwellian dystopia type of thing. It's just like, nobody's really harnessed it like to that effect yet, right? Like mm -hmm. um, a lot of the power information is there, uh, but so far like it hasn't really been used in like, I don't know. I don't want to say like a, a negative way because like obviously like people have been like adversely affected by like big data and like like giant corporations like Facebook and, and Google taking over their data. Um, but it hasn't really been like, you know, uh, Spanish Inquisition, like Middle Ages type of violence, right? Um, so yeah, I, I don't know exactly how to characterize that actually, but I hope we just build a, a better world before anything like that happens, right? So yeah, I, I hope that we can build out these kind of like global resilient systems that um there's just like so much on so many different levels like kind of you know like information and finance and kind of like we said at the beginning like blockchain just covers like so many industries like it applies to everything so yeah i really just hope we can kind of like provide this like platform that is scalable for like free computation you know free not price free but like um anybody open. can open computation yeah. um, and data storage and that like we can actually develop these applications on, on top of it. That's great. Yeah. On that note, like what uh, what projects are you excited about? What kind of projects do you see working towards this, uh, you know, quote unquote, better world, better future? Yeah. I mean, we have like so many. It's um, it's hard to pick like, I, I guess, like in the, the Polkadot ecosystem. I would say like, well, you know, like I used to work in like mechanical engineering or aerospace. And so I, I really like this Robonomics project just because it's like this bridge from like, you know, the software world. Sometimes I'm like, man, I want to like touch something and build something physical, you know? And like Robonomics doing something like really cool with like kind of this bridge from like blockchain to robotics um, where they can kind of like trigger robots to go do something and then come back come back and like report to the chain um, kind of like what they've done. So I think like that's a cool one. And then like 
some of the TE stuff is interesting. Um, so like substrate TE and, and following that's work. So that's kind of like smart contract, confidential computing, which is also like quite scalable. Yeah, I should have like pulled up a list of ecosystem teams because I'm always forgetting people. Plasm, Plasm has been like a long time, a long time builder. Yeah, I don't know. We have like so many teams in the ecosystem. Uh, I'm afraid to keep going because I'm just like, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> no, it's just great. destined to leave out that's like great. really good projects. <laughs> No worries. Uh, interestingly enough, we are going to have Plasm on the podcast in the next couple weeks. Um, so anyone listening, look out for that. Um, very cool. So let's um, let's start to wrap things up. Yeah, we're going to be continuing to to do these um, these podcasts. If there's any pair chains that um, that you guys are interested in, please hit us up on our Twitter or email us and um, we'll we'll try to triage that list and, and bring you guys the projects that you're most interested in knowing more about. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to leave uh, leave the folks off with, Joe? Any any kind of personal outreach or call to action? Uh, no, just uh, good to have you on hosting and like really excited to see the episodes that you put out. Sweet. I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of it as well. Thanks for joining us this week on Relay Chain. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the subjects we talked about today. You can connect with us through Twitter at Relay Chain or by email podcast at parity.io. The team at Parity has some of the brightest minds in blockchain working to build a robust and inclusive ecosystem that puts power back into the hands of its community members. With interoperability as a primary goal, we aim to break down the tribalistic barriers that have formed throughout the blockchain industry. If you want to learn more about what we are building, or if you want to become part of the team, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. Mm-hmm.